Welcome. Okay. Welcome to another episode of 32 Questions, our Dublin-based South by-election special, where we're interviewing the main candidates uh, for 32 questions. It's a bit of uh, this is your life vibe, um, and we're very much into it. Joining us on today's episode, Vanna Bacic is a Labour senator, probably the most high-profile candidate in the Dublin-based South by-election, a long-time campaigner for women's rights, LGBT rights, reproductive rights and equality en general. She brings a storied and fierce political background to this battleground of the South Side. Hello, Ivana. Are you ready for your 32 questions? I certainly am, Una, and I love the introduction. Thank you. And I've always wanted to be on This Is Your Life. This is quite a thrill. <laughs> Let's kick off. What is your motto? My motto? My motto is Edith Piaf. Je ne regret rien. No regrets. What do you think is your greatest political achievement? Wow. I would say as part of the collective that managed to achieve Repeal the Eighth. If you were in charge of Portobello Harbour, how would you have handled the situation there? Well, I actually did put forward a plan and have been meeting with local residents on it, so I'm very involved in it. My plan would have been for the short term, while the uh, ho- while hospitality wasn't open, there were big groups gathering, to have allowed it to stay open, but to have closed it off at night time at weekends. So after nine or 10 o'clock, like a public park and treat it like the public park because it is a residential area. But I'm currently working with the residents to try and get a longer term resolution that hospitality is open, have just two port The council kind of dumped eight port which is overkill. So to have two port but to develop um, areas up the canal, where which are, which are not so residential around Wilton Place and Bagot Street Bridge, where people are actually welcomed to go and socialise safely with benches and toy- public toilets and bins. I think the difficulty is there's just nowhere where people are made to feel welcome to congregate. And we have, um, you know, and we have in, in the gorgeous community of Portobello in which I live, you know, it's such a lovely place to live and to bring up kids and, and to socialise, but we just don't have enough openly accessible places. So that's a long-winded answer, but I think the answer is to create spaces where people feel they can socialise safely and that they're welcomed in, but to try and at the same time address the really serious distress a lot of residents experience the people who live right on the front line of the canal who are having a lot of people you know involved in loud noise and public urination late at night that's not pleasant for anyone so you know there's a there's a there's a medium resolution of it but the problem was the council weren't consulting enough and weren't communicating enough so we're trying to address that now with a really good residents association but it's a great community to live in I want to just stress that you know as you know Andrea I know Um, if you could get one issue over the line overnight for uh, Dublin Bay South, what would it be? Well, I, th- I suppose everyone will say housing to ensure that there's a, a good, decent supply of affordable housing. The Poolbeg site is obvious, three and a half thousand homes were to be built there and haven't yet been delivered. So that's the one biggie. But if I could add one other, I'd say childcare. That's a huge issue for so many people. Uh, so many of my friends and my family, you know, who just find it really hard to get affordable childcare. And it's a real barrier to women, particularly accessing work. And we're also now for my generation looking at issues around, you know, tweaking the fair deal scheme. So people have more options for elder care as well, so that people can stay supported in their own homes rather than being, really almost channeled into nursing home or institutional settings you know so we're looking at care as you know that's coming up on doors and I know myself it's a big issue for people and not quite as much as housing perhaps but certainly huge quality of life issue. Um, Hazel Chu said that the city failed to prepare for an outdoor summer on our one of our apps uh, recently what do you think the biggest mistake the council made? 
I think not ident- not thinking creatively about it. And I mean, councillors and mayors and all involved, I suppose, need to take responsibility, as do we as, as um, national legislators, that more creative thinking around the creation of safe spaces that are welcoming. You know, I have been pushing for some time now for the creation of a space along the canal, not at Portobello Harbour. We have residents living right there, but to identify the spaces where we can welcome people to socialise safely out of doors. One superb example, because let's look at good practice, Ratgar Village, where I grew up. You have the big church in the centre that everybody knows and the church authorities, to be fair to them and the council, came together and created really lovely public seating, benches and chairs, picnic benches and tables um, dotted all around the church grounds and every, anyone is welcome to come in and sit out and take the, have their takeaway coffees there. And it's really just alleviated a lot of pressure on what's a very busy junction, again, in a very uh, built up residential area. So here's good practice. Herbert Park, open all hours, very safe space for socialising, walked through it at the height of lockdown and there were people sitting around on benches socializing safely in the evening so we have really good examples you know Grand Canal Harbour actually is another quite good example of a big public area but there's just places like Portobello where you have a lot more we have less open spaces already and where we need to develop them and think more creatively so I think the council did some things right and the pedestrianization of streets in the centre has been great but some things haven't been done well where there's been a failure of communication with local residents so it's thinking creatively. What do you value most in your friends? Wow, that's a good one. Um, a sense of fun. Um, uh, um, I have a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, I've very, you know, good groups of very close friends from different settings. And I suppose it's an affinity, a sense of humor, a sense of fun and um, a kind of loyalty. We have, you know, like we go back a long way. Some of my friends and I, Andrea, know some of my very good buddies from Powder Bubble days in the 90s and the Dublin club scene, which I still maintain. That was the best ever, you know, and the uh, we've never had it as good since Powder Bubble and Alternative Miss Ireland and Ham and Gag and all the brilliant nights we had with Trish Brennan in particular, my ex-flatmate. And um, so, you know, we have loyalty and fun, I guess. It's clear that James Gagan has the Fine Gael party machine behind him with several ministers canvassing with him. How does it feel to be up against that? Well, look, Fine Gael have a huge machine, you know, not just in the constituency, but nationally. And clearly they're also in government. So um, they're very much, um, uh, very much to the fore, you know, very much have dominated in this constituency for some time. However, traditionally, this constituency had a strong progressive vote. It was a Labour stronghold for many decades. I've been, I was out canvassing last night with uh, my uh, great mentor, Rory Quinn, and uh, who's been so enthusiastically canvassing with me. And of course, Rory held the seat for 30 years. He held a Labour seat. It had, it's the constituency that had the highest vote for appeal. And even going before that for marriage equality and in the divorce referendum in the grim and distant day in the 80s and 90s when I started political campaigning you know this was a progressive constituency and what we're lacking in this constituency now is a progressive voice and specifically a progressive woman's voice so while we're up against a Fine Gael machine there's no doubt about that we're finding a lot of quiet support as well for me for my candidacy and for the values I stand for. What's your favourite song? Oh, that's a brilliant one. I have so many. That's the tricky one to try and choose one. Um, I have a real love for old ska music. I'm an indie kid, really, from the 80s and 90s. And actually, Ghost Town by the Specials is a really, really special song for me. I've just all through, like since I was a student, it's been a great dance anthem. And it's got such a powerful and poignant political message, too. So I love it. Uh, Who's your favourite non-Labour Party politician working today? 
Oh, wow. That's a really tough one because I work closely with quite a lot of TDs and senators from across the political spectrum. And um, if we can call it a spectrum across the political landscape. Um, right now, well, I guess the, the person who's non-Labour with whom I work most closely now is probably Jennifer Carol McNeil, who's the new Dunleary TD for Fine Gael and who... Um, who she and she has an interest in penal reform. I know her from before her political days as a lawyer, and we've uh, I've invited her to co-convene our all-party group on penal reform with me. I'm a criminal lawyer, so I have a long interest in this, and I wanted to to get an Oireachtas group back up and running that would have a cross-party interest in prison policy and in really trying to push for alternatives to imprisonments. And Jennifer has is uh, has kindly agreed to co-convene it with me and the I Irish Penal Reform Trust are facilitating us. So I'm working really closely with her at the moment. So I guess she'd be my closest ally that's not Labour at the moment, but, you know, specifically because we have this in shared interest. But there's a lot of examples. I mean, I've worked with other, I've worked over the years with lots of others in lots of parties from um, on particular projects and issues, notably on repeal. We had a lot, I mean, I worked very closely with Kate O'Connell on repeal and with Lisa Chambers. So we had a cross party grouping um and of course with lots of, of uh, people from other parties and parties of the left as well what do you regard as the lowest depth of misery wow in, in your yeah i mean it's a bit of a bit of an abstract <laughs> and that's one of andrea's questions andrea would you like to expand i suppose if you could visualize where the worst place you could possibly be in the world would be Gee, mentally. mentally I just just gosh on a, in, a, in a conceptual way well I was on the foreign affairs committee for years I did a lot of work with Syria with Syrians here in Ireland and uh people rep, you know really trying to highlight what was going on in Syria I think Syria would be a pretty horrific place to be right now for any civilian um Yemen. I mean, if you're talking, if that is that the question? Is that like where is the worst well, place? I could, if I was to answer, not to make it about me, I would say like being without connections and friends and alone. Ah, okay, okay, that's a slightly different one. Yeah, um, I guess um, not having control of your life, I think, is the worst thing to to be. I mean. You know, the, I, actually, the question, Andrea, reminds me of the one on the Guardian questionnaire, which I love every Saturday, for anyone who reads the Guardian on Saturday. Since I lived in London as a um, student, I always buy it on Saturday and they have this personal questionnaire. And the question that I love in it is, what's the worst job you've ever had? So, you know, that's that's one that everyone starts to sort of, you know, it kind of just tells you something about somebody anyway. So when you've no control, when you're working in a really low wage job, and you're at rock bottom, you know, that's, I think, probably one of the worst situations to be in. If you're talking about in a developed country that's not in war or conflict or famine, mm -hmm. then that's a pretty awful place to be. And what's, a, what's a big issue in the constituency that you don't think gets enough attention? Ah, OK, well, the big issue, actually, that we, I've just come from a canvas in Rathmines, so it's it's a real issue there. But across the constituency is lack of public spaces, which and in particular, nowhere for kids to play um, games. There's very few publicly accessible pitches. It's it's become a really big issue. I think as, you know, 
more and more um, children are, are staying on in sports. So I have two teenage daughters and they play soccer and they play Gaelic and they play hockey and all, and, you know, all sorts of things. But certainly when they started getting involved in sport, it, this became, I, I realised what a pressing issue it is. And you say you have a club like Ranelagh Gales, it's really growing, big GA club in what was not typically a GA area, but there's no pitches for the kids to play. So they kind of move around and we have use of different people's pitches. And at the moment, I'm trying to get the army, the defence forces, to give us uh, Cahill Brewer Barracks playing fields. Huge green space in the middle of rap mines, totally invisible. So unless you're involved in this or have kids playing in the area, it's an issue that's sort of invisible. And yet it came up just now, canvassing around Rath Mines. It comes up on every canvas, particularly around Harold's Cross, Terenure, um, Rath Mines, Portobello, where you've got actually quite a lot of children and teenagers and very little public space. It's a bit like it's the next level after the issue about, you know, where do people socialise safely mm. out of doors and so on. But it's, it's really, you might say, kind of almost niche, but it's a really big issue for people. How does it feel um, when other politicians try to claim ownership over the movement for reproductive rights in Ireland and the repeal movement when they may not have played seismic roles? Oh, look, you know, it's I'm always delighted when people come to the view that they are pro-choice who mightn't have been before. <laughs> Una, I think, you know, as you, as the three of us would be aware, there are a lot of people who converted um, and, you know, are still speaking of themselves as being converted to being pro-repeal or pro-choice. You know, we may know they weren't particularly before, but it is great to see people finding that there's uh, popular support for something that wasn't perceived as popular before. I suppose, you know, I've been involved in this campaign so long and was so, uh, um, I suppose, so it was so it was so central to shaping my political um, life, really, since the 80s, since I was threatened with prison in 89 over giving information to women who needed it for because they were in crisis pregnancy. So at that point, you know, we were being spatted on the street for being even pro-information, let alone being pro-legalisation of abortion. So it's been a long and tough old journey. And I certainly I don't think I'd have stayed around if you told me it was going to take 30 years. But it was actually quite heartening to see people who had who had told me to my face that this was something nobody would, you know, Ireland will never vote for abortion. It was kind of nice to see those same people jumping on the repeal the eighth train as it was clearly steaming into the station to use a terrible metaphor uh, in the run up to the 2018 referendum. So, you know, it's good to see people moving towards a position that I always felt. And I think most, you know, I know the three of us feel and many people now feel was absolutely the only compassionate and sensible and uh, moderate position to have, which is that women need reproductive health care. So, you know, it's great that this is now mainstream and that loads of people left and right have, have uh, um, embraced it. Um, but yeah, it shouldn't have taken as long as it did. So, you know, and, you know, it's the certain people who obstructed it bear responsibility for that, too. But it's hard to push it along. But we did it in the end. Do you like being called Labour's queen of political correctness? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever called me that but you, but I love it. <laughs> A lot of people whose point of view fits Labour turned away from the party during the recession. What do you think was the party's worst policy move in that era? Well, the parties going into government in 2011, we knew, though, you know, at the time was going to be very damaging to the party. And none of us knew because the outgoing Fianna Fáil Green government hadn't told anyone just how bad the economy was in 2011 when the new government was elected. I remember some of the Labour people who went into government coming out of some of those early meetings 
utterly shocked. And they've said that since that that Fianna Fáil and the PDs and the Greens had left the government, the country in such a bankrupted state. And um, so, you know, the policies that that government introduced to try and address that and bring the country back to bankruptcy were, were policies that no Labour Party would ever want to introduce. And we battled some of the things. We held lines, for instance, on basic social welfare rates that would otherwise have not been held within the government. But, you know, I abstained actually on the vote for Labour to go into that government because I knew it was going to be bad for the left. But at the same time, I knew why the majority of the party membership voted to go in because it was the only prospect at the time for a stable government to get us out of that mess. So, you know, the austerity policies, I'm really glad to see now are being, they're being, dis you know, that even right-wing economists are now saying, well, austerity policies are not, we're not the right way to get us out of that bankrupt state. But at the time, between the, with the Troika, the commission, the IMF, and the, um, you know, the World Bank, there was no, um, there was, and the IMF, there was absolutely no alternative vision being promoted and we were in a minor we were a minority in a right-wing government trying to bring a country back from bankruptcy that was actually in an international aid program so i think you know we get labor took the entirety of the blame for the policies that were introduced wrongly in my view but but understandably and you know we still meet people who obviously feel they can't vote for labor because of that we're trying to rebuild the party now you know, those of us who've stayed with it and stayed loyal to it, because for me, it remains the case that Labour is the party of the social democratic, international social democratic and socialist movement. It's the party in Ireland of the trade union movement of Larkin, of Connolly. It's got such a proud tradition. And without a Labour voice centrally at the table in the, in the Oireachtas or in government, we just don't have a commitment to state investment in housing. And where you've seen the absence of Labour really obviously is in the four wasted years on housing between 2016 and 2020, when Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil simply didn't build public houses, didn't invest, let things like the Irish glass bottle site just slide. Three and a half thousand homes supposed to have been delivered in 2016, 2017. Still not a sod turned. I was looking at the site the other day with the local housing action group and just nothing done. So you need that centre left voice at the table. And I'd say one last thing about Labour and government, which is that, you know, it's very easy to be a critic from the sidelines. And there's a lot of parties in Ireland in this jurisdiction who have never been in government. There's some parties on the left who have no ambition to go into government. And you're never gonna change things unless you actually have an ambition to go into government and to be a constructive voice if you're in opposition. And Labour have always been constructive, have always sought ambition to change things by going into government. That's democracy. So to me, it's easy to be what we used to call in college an armchair socialist and to be um, very pure in your beliefs and never have to compromise. But you're never going to achieve change that way either. You know, and politics is the art of compromise, it's not a popular thing to say, but it's the truth. I've only ever I've achieved more legislation than any other opposition senator. I've got more bills passed into law. I've got a really good record on how through working with people in government and uh, even people I don't didn't agree with, but you know, achieving compromise and getting change made, even repeal the eighth, we had to work towards that incrementally. Marriage equality, you work incrementally, bring people with you as you go. And that's the way to achieve change. So rather than shouting from the sidelines, but it's a lot harder obviously to be seen to be compromising because then you're not, you know, then you're seen as unprincipled, but you're not, you know, but if you if you believe that you, you're in politics to change things, you've got to be ready to go into government. That's a central truth. And for me, that's the strength of the Labour Party um, that uh, we're rebuilding currently. Name two things you would like to do for renters in the constituency. Okay, three-year rent freeze and build more apartments.
You've been involved in electoral politics for 23 ish years, 30 if you can include student politics. I think we've got our numbers right. But you have been really unlucky in elections. Why do you think that is? Well, in fact, I've been really lucky in elections. I am the longest serving woman senator and I have been re-elected four times by the graduates of Trinity. OK, let's say I, I, outside the Shannon. You're right. You're right. But outside of the Shannon. Well, look, I would never, ever take the Shannon for granted or the voters there. You know, I've seen Sean Barrett unseated by Lynn Ruan, for instance, who's a superb colleague now. But, you know, one never should assume anything. So I'm really lucky I'm on a winning streak. I've won all the last elections I've run, but I make no apology for having run other elections that I've lost. I mean, that's democracy. If you don't put yourself forward for election, if no people don't put themselves forward for election, there's no democracy. If you know, if you think this, you'd like to see change, run for election. And one of the worst things I find actually is particularly for women, to be told, oh, you're a serial loser, you keep running and losing. Well, look, you know, David Norris, I quoted him actually at the weekend, another journalist who asked me this, the wonderful David Norris, who's my great friend and colleague in the Shannon, he had to run several times for the Shannon before he was elected. He's now obviously the longest serving senator, you know, and mm. uh, and has a fabulous record. But he said to me back in the uh, in the mid noughties when I was first running, the Shannon, he just said, you've just got to keep trying, don't give up. And if that was, if I could have a second motto, that would be my second motto. You know, don't give up on it. It's Mm. a good thing. And, you know, he said it again in the presidential election when he ran, you know, he quotes Beckett. And I always thought that was superb. It was so brave. He said, fail again, fail better. You know, don't be afraid to be ambitious. Women are always being tarred with ambition like it's a dirty word. Well, I'm ambitious. You know, I have political beliefs and political values. You know, I don't apologize for putting them forward and for running for election. So, you know, here I am again. My my first time in my home constituency, though, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to do so. Never had the opportunity before. So that's very exciting. Does it feel strange to you, though, that this by-election is being seen by many in the media and political sphere as Fine Gael versus Sinn Féin? Um, It's not a surprise because that's the message that Fine Gael and Sinn Féin both want to keep pushing. And they're both delivering that message whenever they can, you know, because it suits both of them to portray it as a battle between the two. In fact, the reality on the ground is much more nuanced and it's disrespectful to voters to present it as either or. Because what we're hearing is that people are concerned about issues and quality of life and that, in fact, there's a lot more support for me, for Labour, for the values we're expressing than Fine Gael or Sinn Féin would like anyone to believe. What issue is being brought up most often on the doors? Um, COVID uh, is a huge issue, and particularly for those in their 60s who got an AstraZeneca dose and haven't. Mm. And, yeah, that's coming up every time. Housing, uh, access to housing, of course, is also huge. People, even people who themselves are secure in accommodation, concerned about their kids, you know, and will they be able to afford it? And certainly for anyone who's renting, real concern. I mean, the average rent in the constituency is €2,111 per month. That's not an affordable rent unless you're earning a big salary. And then you have people who are paying so much in rent and can't afford to get then buy houses and are are really anxious because they've no security of tenure. So housing's huge. But I mean, COVID, you know, that's the backdrop in which we're canvassing too. and And that is also a big issue. If there are no restrictions, where would you most like to live? Um, actually, I'm really happy living in Portobello. I love where I live now. Do you think Fine Gael is drifting more to the right or that it might do so as they lose ground? Uh, yeah, I think what we tend to see in elections is Fine Gael, um, particularly when they feel defensive, uh, they 
you know, go back to a sort of a almost knee-jerk neoliberal uh, view. And I mean, we saw it this week, actually, the, the tarnished, I nearly said Taoiseach, the tarnished Dilio Varadkar, um, uh, calling again for uh, income tax cuts for higher earners, you know, this, this, this mantra. And I've seen it, I think every election that I can remember, Fine Gael, if they feel under pressure, starting to talk about tax cuts for higher tax cuts you know it's it's that that mantra rather than talking about public spending investment in in infrastructure investment in housing what i'm actually hearing and this is from people who would be in business who might be even traditional finnegal voters is the concern that we can't keep people in the country and we can't attract inward investment unless we have the housing schools healthcare infrastructure that people expect you know somebody called uh, an entrepreneur i know calls this the high ceilings and big windows syndrome people who are com- coming here to invest want to know that their top execs can get nice homes and their middle-ranking people, all their employees can afford nice homes if they live here. Otherwise, they won't attract good talent. So, particularly for high-tech firms, my brothers are in tech, so it's a big like this is a big issue. How or who do you feel is your biggest competitor in the in the by-election? Well, Fine Gael, you know, it's theirs. It, it's it's their outgoing seat. Um, they've they uh, obviously had the biggest vote share in the la- election last year. So clearly, the big challenge is to uh, is to hold off Fine Gael for this seat. Uh, what we're hearing is a desire for change, a discontent with government, particularly around public services. I'm banging the table again, sorry. Uh, around housing and uh, health and, and childcare. So, um, so you know, I think that discontent will translate certainly into opposition votes. And what we're saying is, what's missing in the constituency is a centre-left voice and a woman's voice. You've got four outgoing male TDs, three of whom are government and one of whom is Sinn Féin, and you need a change. And you know, let's recapture that Labour voice for the constituency. And that's what we're trying to do. Not that we want to be talking in this way, or that you want to be thinking in this way. But if you don't win, who would you most like to take the seat? Well, you know, I always transfer to green or centre-left candidates. So I'll, so there's obvious contenders. How did you feel watching the eighth being repealed three years ago after being so involved in campaigning it for, in campaigning for it for so many years? It felt incredible. I mean, uh, well, I, I was with both of you that day and with so many others in Dublin Castle and going between the RDS and the cat. It was just, it was actually amazing. I was kind of, I was speechless, you know, for some of us, which is unusual. And, <laughs> and, but I was really, I just really felt so emotional and so overwhelmed. It was incredible. I mean, I, I think, you know, the 60s, I still get kind of all shivery. Thank you, Eddie, like 66%. Incredible, you know, and I've been a veteran of so many referendum campaigns where we've lost or, where, you know, again, it's that thing of, you have to pick yourself up each time. So this was just an amazing feeling. As I, I mean, marriage equality, similarly, we didn't, we didn't know, you, you never know, because in every referendum that I've been involved in, there's always been developments in the last two weeks that can actually have a kind of seismic effect on people, the way people vote. And you can feel things slipping or going your way or whatever. So you can never be sure, in other words, even if you feel positive and so on. So uh, you know, I felt amazing on the 25th of May, 2018. Not that it's a date emblazoned in my mind. Or <laughs> <laughs> it was also my 50th birthday, by the way. So it was really a date emblazoned in my mind. <laughs> a lot of young people are gravitating towards Sinn Féin um, in elections. Why do you think they should vote for Labour? Well, we've got a great young team, young, great, great team of all diverse ages canvassing with me, but a lot of Labour youth, a lot of my former students and a lot of UCD as well as Trinity students coming out, which is great. So I think we are, we're seeing a revival 
of uh, uh, as we rebuild the party of interest in the that left wing tradition, that social democratic tradition. And that's why I think um, and that's why we're the argument we're trying to make with younger voters, particularly to come back to that left wing approach. Sinn Féin for us is a populist party. I mean, I've been, again, as I say, around long enough to know a lot about Sinn Féin, about their, um, you know, about their origins, about their uh you know the way in which they develop policy and so on and um and i don't see them as a left-wing party you know and i think i think what they're doing is they're very successfully capturing what was a fianna fall vote and you see that you know fianna fall literally you know as you look at the polls fianna falls uh, fall in the polls is, is mirrored by Sinn Féin's rise and they're capturing a lot of that fianna fall vote what's your idea of perfect happiness it would be with my girls, my daughters and Alan, my partner and, uh, and our dog. And uh, this is perfect happiness, right? Because we're still in uh, lockdown on a beach in the south of Spain. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yes, very much so. Um, what one thing have you learned about yourself or do you feel has changed about yourself over the past year? Um, I suppose I've found... Uh, just how important it is to have a really tight network that you can see, you know, even in a 5K lockdown and how important it is to have some outlet that's not just work and, you know, it's not just work and keeping the house going and so on. And for me, actually, it was sea swimming with this really tight group of friends. And it's such a cliche, but we were lucky. We are lucky enough to live within 5K of the Pussy at Poolbeg, South Walls. We've been swimming off the half at the Half Moon Club at least twice a week all through the winter first time I've ever done this and with a tight group of friends and it's been an literally a lifesaver it's been incredible as a, just an outlet so it's that idea that notion that all of us need an outlet you know when we were at the rock bottom for everyone I think it was January and February when we saw those hideous figures and people so many people so devastated by Covid that you know if you could just keep going through that keep the head down keep working keep the house going and then just get this outlet of swim in the sea even once a week so I met loads of people through lockdown for whom this was the lifesaver but everyone had something like that you know bonus question do you own a dry robe (laughs) (laughs) yes I do Alan gave me one for Christmas but I never wear it because I'm embarrassed (laughs) (laughs) who is your favorite hero in fiction Oh, in fiction. Oh, my God. I love um, I'm a big fan of Philip Pullman's books, his dark materials. And I love his heroine, Lyra. I just think she's fab. A young woman. And so many of I'm big Lord of the Rings, you know, all of that Star Wars. I love all that. But a lot of it is quite male domination. So I love despite the fact that it's written by a man, the, the hero is of that is a young woman. If you could magic up one big public amenity for the constituency overnight that wasn't necessarily a park or a kind of public space or plaza, what would it be? A giant open air Lido, a swimming pool at the at the canal dock. It'd be superb. Like I, um, I just think you know I lived in London for a few years in the nineties, and you're you're miles from the sea. We were living up in um, North London. So we were lucky enough to live within a short cycle of Hampstead Heath and the ponds and down to Hyde Park and the Lido. And there's so many open air public swimming pools in London. Despite the fact being far from the sea, you can still swim in the open air. So to me, that's the big lacking thing in Dublin. You know, since the Black Rock baths and the old Sandymount baths closed, we should revive that. What do you do for fun? Swim. There you are. And cycle. What is your death row meal? Not that we're putting you on death row. (laughs) 
Oh, that's great. That's a great question. I love it. It would be, it would have to be seafood. I love seafood. Um, when we can, we go down to Ballyvaughan, which I adore. Uh, West Clare. My mum grew up in Clare, so we're very, very attached to the coastline there. And uh, Linan's new key, crab claws and garlic butter. Um, oh, oh, prawns. Delicious. Any seafood. That would be my death row meal. Followed by a, a lot of chocolate if it was death row. Uh, you said your motto is Je ne regret rien, but what is your biggest regret? Oh, wow. Um, really, I'm ver- I am very optimistic. Otherwise, I would never have stuck with the pro-choice. <laughs> I think anyone in the pro-choice movement in Ireland in the, in the 90s is optimistic. Um, so I try not to look back with regret because I think you learn, you know, the David Norris, brilliant, you know, you, you learn from your failures and so on. Um gosh regret I guess you know we try I, I would have loved to have a, a dog sooner than like we got a dog just before the first lockdown brilliantly in December 2019 and I would you know she's such a huge asset in the household and everybody loves her and I'm just sorry we didn't get a dog sooner maybe that's that's a good one yeah and finally your 30 second question why should people who might be on the fence in the constituency vote for you because we need a change, we need a woman's voice and we need a left of centre progressive voice to represent this constituency. It's been lacking for the last year and it's really needed now. Ivana Bacic, those are your 32 questions. Thank you.